there's a concept that comes out of the biblical period. We don't find it in the text, but I'll show you. It's from the biblical period, and it's an idea that the rabbis call baseless hatred. So we're going to walk through Jesus' message and then ultimately where they come up with this idea of baseless hatred. We're going to end up looking at this museum. This is a museum. It's in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. And the museum is called the Burnt House. Now, you can imagine exactly what the museum is. It's a house that got burnt. Maybe you've been there if you've gone to Jerusalem. It's a... Uh, you can barely... You'd walk past it and never even know it's there. But it's quite an interesting museum because this is a house that they discovered when they were rebuilding the old part of Jerusalem, and it's a house that was burned down in 70 AD when the Romans burnt the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. It's a remarkable little museum, and I'll show you some pictures from it in a little bit. But the question we want to ask is, how did they get to that point where Jerusalem was destroyed? What was, the, what was leading up to Jerusalem being destroyed? And then we'll look at how the rabbis interpreted those events. Of course, we'll do that in light of Jesus. So, as by way of doing an overview, we're going to go through the idea that Jesus showed up with a very distinct message of forgiveness. Not just, hey, God forgives you of your sins, but you need to forgive other people of their sins. So, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we forgive the trespasses of others. So that's right in the Lord's Prayer. But we'll talk a little bit about his message of forgiveness and why it's so important. From the Bible, there's a very strong message of forgiveness that comes out of Joseph. We'll talk about that. Joseph meaning not Jesus' father, but the Joseph that's in Genesis. And then we'll talk about how Jesus sees forgiveness as being the path forward that you can't move forward in a coherent manner without the ability to forgive. We'll talk about the second temple being destroyed, and then we'll wrap this up with a concept that's known as baseless hatred. Hating one another for no reason, meaning you don't have a qualified reason that, to be upset at somebody. They've never done anything to you, but you hate them nonetheless. All right, so that's our, that's our overview. So if we start with Jesus, he shows up. It's a very pronounced, a very pronounced message of forgiveness. And like I said, it, it's not simply that God forgives us of our sins and God wants us back in a relationship. It's that we need to be able to forgive the sins of others. So there's so many different ways that Jesus says this. I put a few on your handout just so you can go back and reflect on them, but He's constantly pointing out the fact that we need to be able to forgive each other. And he speaks of forgiveness as this path. It's the path to be able to love your neighbor. So we have a, we have a commandment that Jesus said is the second or, or just like the greatest commandment, love God, love God, love your neighbor. Well, how do we get to that point? So the first thing I want to do is walk through the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, which he's quoting Leviticus. So you can turn to Leviticus 
if you want. If not, that's okay. I'm going to put it on the screen as I talk through it. But when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He quotes two Old Testament commandments. The first one is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting this, Leviticus 19.18. But one of the important pieces is, we want to look at the entire passage of Leviticus 19.18. We tend to only know the second half, right? So the, the verse sounds like this. You shall not take vengeance, or some of your Bibles may see, you may not, you shall not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any of your people. And your people is your people, not just anybody else in the world. It's the people closest to you, because who are the people that hurt us the easiest? Well, it's the ones that are closest to you, right? So if we just look at this language, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. And the implication is somebody has done something to upset you. That's the point. So you wouldn't want to take vengeance unless they'd actually done something. So do not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's where Jesus is quoting the commandment. So we notice those two words up at the top that lead, that lead up to this. Vengeance, or revenge, some of your Bibles, and bearing a grudge. Even the words to bear a grudge, you're bearing something, you're carrying a weight. So when somebody does something that upsets you, it creates literally like a spiritual weight. You can feel it. And when you release the spiritual weight, your body naturally feels lighter and you can restore yourself back to where you were prior to being upset. So the question that I want to ask is, well, how do we get from wanting to seek revenge or bearing a grudge to loving your neighbor as yourself? How do you go from bearing a grudge to love? Well, what's implied in that is forgiveness. And we don't see that always, partly because we don't read the, full, the whole commandment, but also because it doesn't, it doesn't say it out loud, forgiveness. But how do you go from being upset or seeking vengeance to actual love? Well, the process to do that is the process of forgiveness. So, hence, this is why Jesus is so important for him to talk about forgiving others. So, forgiveness is a process of releasing. It's the mechanism that moves you from wanting to seek revenge or bearing a grudge. And again, if you think about that, that those words, bear a grudge, means you're holding on to something. You're, you're, uh, you won't let go. You're bearing it, and it's like a weight, right? And so forgiveness is, the, is releasing it. And once you release it, now you can start to go back to a, a, the normal posture that God intended you to be. So it's a process of releasing. And it's also, as we'll talk about in a minute, it's a process of you as an individual. So it's not, you have to do it yourself. You have to choose to do it yourself. Okay. There's so many examples from the New Testament of Jesus talking about forgiveness. I just want to give you probably the most radical one, because Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, it might be a good idea if you think about forgiving, right? He not only tells us to forgive, but then 
He's going to actually practice it himself. He's going to show you as an example. It's a so that we can look to him and say, how are we supposed to respond in a situation where I'm upset? Well, respond as he's responding. So in Luke 23, Jesus is being put on the cross. Now, we'll talk we'll go into this, but he's been betrayed at every level. Every level possible that you could be betrayed. Be- Jesus is betrayed. He's been beaten by Roman soldiers, and now he's going through the humiliating and painful death on the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that my response would be this. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Like, I don't know that I would be able to muster. I think I'd be calling down curses or something, you know. Come on, God, send down some fire and brimstone on these soldiers that are, that are persecuting me. But he doesn't. And that's, it's so radical. It's, even, it's so hard for us to imagine that someone would be able to do that in that situation. So he's calling for forgiveness in the face of tremendous injustice and suffering. And then this next phrase, I think, is one of the most profoundly truthful phrases in the Bible. And it's, you know, it's not obvious at the surface. You know, he says, forgive them or Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's so profoundly true because we don't always recognize how our own behavior can lead to an upset in somebody else. We can't see. We can't see the fullness of our behavior. If we were able to see the fullness of our behavior, we would stop. We would recognize what we're doing. And so these soldiers, you know, Jesus is able to look in their humanity and, and see that they're just they're stuck in a system, and they can't even recognize the injustice of what's happening. So I think that's a, that's a, it's just so true because we have blind spots. Everybody has blind spots. And part of the forgiveness process is going to be to say they don't know what they're doing and help God help them see what their actions, how their actions are playing out in the world. It's just, it's tremendously profound, I think. So Jesus is going to constantly give us examples of how we are going to, should respond in the face of injustice and suffering. So I'm going to give you this, it's, it's kind of my working definition for this idea um, of forgiveness. Is the way that Jesus talks about it is it's a path, right? And if you remember, the early Christians are called the way. It's the way to go through the world. It's a path and you have to walk the path. So the path forward to peace, and if you remember when we talked about the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire said, hey, we're going to bring peace to the world, right? And then you go, okay, well, what's your methodology for bringing peace? And they had the four things, piety, war, right? So war is part of their process to bring peace. Victory, meaning we must win, right? There's nothing about justice and saying I could be wrong and then you get peace and so if that's the world's way of saying that's how you bring about peace then the biblical way is the exact opposite so it's the path it's the path you move forward towards peace now the next sentence is what we've talked about numerous times is there's inherent suffering in the world meaning you're going to suffer because you're a limited being and the reality is people are going to let us down i mean there's just there's so many different ways to suffer. It's inherent in the world. And so what we have to do is find 
a mode of being that sets against the suffering that brings meaning and joy and peace to our lives. So that path to peace, given all the suffering that is in the world, is through forgiveness. That's at least the way that I see Jesus presenting this message. And oh, by the way, if you once you're consciously aware of this message of forgiveness, you'll see it all over Paul's letters too. He, he weaves it in to almost every letter talking about how to walk down that path. So, okay. Now, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about just about forgiveness because there's a lot of confusion. Um, there's, there's so much confusion. The moment you say forgiveness, people come up with different conceptions that aren't exactly accurate. And so what's really important is that we see as accurately as we can, is, you know, maybe we can't see the fullness of what forgiveness is, but forgiveness is a, re- is a process, right? It starts with the individual. So the individual, it's a process of releasing, and that's where we were talking about bearing a grudge, and now I'm going to release that. I'm going to release the upset. You've done something to upset me, but I'm going to choose to let that upset go. So it's a process of releasing, and it's a process of releasing what we would call an upset. Now, we don't have time today to go into all of this, but all upsets are caused by unmet expectations. You have an expectation that a human being is going to act a certain way. They don't act that way, and that causes you to be upset. And the moment you see the upset, now you have a choice. So forgiveness is always a choice. How am I going to respond? To an upset. Many people think that when they forgive, they're condoning the behavior that they're forgiving, and that is totally not it. Every book you'll read about forgiveness has to go through this whole chapter on how it's not condoning behavior. You're not saying that the behavior's okay. You're releasing the upset so that you can be at peace. The reason that this is important is people often associate They don't want to forgive because they think that if I forgive, there can be no justice. Well, that's false too. Justice is a completely separate issue. You can both forgive and seek justice, proper justice, at the same time. Those Those are not mutually exclusive. So we have to be able to set our framework of forgiveness to say, even if I choose to forgive, say somebody, you know, stole my cat and I now I'm there, there needs to be justice involved. Well, I can choose to forgive, meaning release the upset, at the same time that I seek justice. It's like you really have to get into the nuances and make sure that we fully understand what's happening with the, the, the concept of forgiveness. Okay, let me switch gears for a second. The very first, and this is so key, it's key to to everything we're going to talk about today. The very first example of forgiveness in the Bible is Joseph. And it's a critical example of how powerful forgiveness is. So if we look at the story of Joseph, right? Joseph was sold into slavery by his older brothers. That's a clear injustice. He's betrayed by his older brothers. He ends up in Egypt. He ends up in jail in Egypt. That's an injustice. But through it all, he maintains a mode of being that eventually leads him to be in power, right? 
So we would, and I would say we, but in Jesus' day, they saw Joseph as a type of Messiah, meaning he's a, he's a type of person that brings about salvation for the nation. He's a, but he's a suffering Messiah. I don't know if you, if you guys know this or not, but in Jesus' day, there were two thoughts about Messiah. One of them was Messiah, son of David, someone who would come as a king to lead the nation. That's what they really want, someone to overthrow the Romans, to lead the nation. But there's a different picture in the Old Testament, too. There's a suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53. So they also said, well, look, there's a Messiah, son of Joseph. Joseph was a suffering Messiah. And which one is Jesus? And the answer is, yes, he's both. He's both son of David, who's coming to reign justly in the world. At the same time, he's the suffering servant. So Jesus ends up filling both of these. As And, and watch how Jesus has the same message that what Joseph did. So I mentioned this. The very first time you see the concept of forgiveness in the Old Testament is in the Joseph story. So it's in the book of Genesis, and this becomes it, um, sometimes called first principle, sometimes called first use. It's when you see the very first time that this concept is used in the Bible, it becomes a very important model for what God's message is to us. Now, we don't, we don't read our Bible that way, but if you go to Genesis 50, 17, and don't turn there now, I'm just saying, I want, if you want to go back and read the story, Joseph is finally back with his brothers, and now he's going to have to, he has a choice, right? A choice to forgive his brothers or not. And the very first time the word that's used that gets translated into forgive shows up is right here to say, are you going to forgive us, Joseph? And the, and the point is, if we're going to live in a world then brothers have to be able to forgive each other, right? That's part of what the example is. It's, it's, a, it's a very powerful way of showing the importance of forgiveness. So Joseph is given two options, right? He's in power. He's been betrayed. And when you're in full power and nobody can, is going to stop you, well, then you could easily take revenge, right? And that's what the brothers are worried about. The brothers say to themselves, you know, now that our fathers died, what if Joseph decides to seek revenge? which is exactly Le Leviticus 19, do not seek revenge. If he decides to seek revenge, he has power over all of us, right? So his choice was, I could seek revenge, or I can choose forgiveness. And of course, Joseph chooses forgiveness. Now, in a literary sense, this is so important because the, the fact that he chose forgiveness means that there's a political aspect to forgiveness. It's not just individual that I forgive someone else, there's a political aspect to forgiveness. Because what we find is Genesis, Genesis, the book of Genesis ends in chapter 50. And notice it's a complete dysfunctional family, right? In fact, Genesis, the whole book of Genesis is dysfunctional families. Cain killed his brother Abel. Isaac and Ishmael don't get along. Jacob and Esau don't get along. You get to the 12 brothers who, who sell one of their brothers into slavery. That's dysfunction, right? So at Genesis 50, the picture we get is a dysfunctional family. Yet if you turn the page to Exodus chapter 1, you find out they're a nation. So this dysfunctional family transformed themselves into a nation, and the only new concept that was introduced is forgiveness. 
So how do you get from dysfunction to nation? Well, if we look at the biblical story, it's by being able to forgive the people around you. That's how important this is. So, and as, as Jesus shows up, he's going to have the same exact message. You have to be able to forgive your brother. You're, this nation of Israel is not going to be able to stand unless you can forgive your brother. It's the same exact message that Joseph brought. So that he's bringing forward that entire message. So just like Joseph had a choice to respond, what we have to ask ourselves is when it comes to the message of Jesus, what we're looking at is how do you respond? There's no doubt somebody in the world is going to upset you. Period. And it's probably going to be someone really close to you because that's usually how it happens. So we have to ask then, when we are presented with an upset, right, what's our response? So somebody does something that upsets us. Now there's varying degrees of upset, right? And the upsets tend to cause suffering and that there's varying degrees of suffering. One of the worst ways, we'll talk about this in a minute, is betrayal. Human betrayal is one of the worst ways that you can end up suffering because, well, we'll talk about it in a minute. So the question is, here's our person. They've got an upset. They've been betrayed and they're suffering because of it. And now you want to ask, how do I respond? Do I respond in a negative fashion or do I respond in a positive manner? And it's going to make all the difference in the world around you, how you respond, right? So negative, I'm sure we could come up with a lot more answers than this, but you have things like anger, bitterness, resentment. So yes, there are plenty of things in the world for you to be upset about and end, but you don't want to end up being bitter, resentful, and anger, because if that begins to take over, you'll end up in revenge. That's what Leviticus says that we don't want you to do, because you'll end up acting out your anger against something, whether it's the person who did it, or maybe you even take it out on, you take it out on your dog because you're upset with something that someone else did. Either way, you don't want to act that out. So that's the negative side, right? The positive side, of course, is what we're talking about. Forgiveness, to release the upset. You're going to turn over the justice to God or seek justice, but not while you're angry. It's to remain in goodness, meaning you're not going to allow yourself to descend into bitterness and, and resentment. And it's actually fulfilling out the commandment to love your neighbor. It doesn't mean you have to have warm emotional feelings towards them. It just means I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm not going to become angry at you. So how do we respond? This is what J Jesus is really going to show us. He's going to show us the proper response in order to bring about the kingdom of peace. Now, there's one aspect of this that I just want to point out, and it has to do with power, because when people feel they've been wronged, what comes with that is often a, a, a sensation of being powerless. And what they want to do is gain power over the person who wronged them. Well, there's two sides to power. There's inauthentic power, and then there's authentic power. And inauthentic power, it's power that leaves you worse off than you were before. So it gives you, so anger is a type of inauthentic power. Anger makes you feel powerful in the moment, but in the long run, it's a corrosive, it's corrosive to your soul. 
So you have anger, the same thing, bitterness, resentfulness, and possibly seeking revenge. Those are all inauthentic power. They're not actually going to build you up spiritually for, in, for betterment in the future. It's a, there's going to be a negative aspect. Then you have the authentic power, of course. This is what Jesus is showing us. Forgiveness, goodness, loving your neighbor. Those are, those are authentic ways. In fact, you know, sometimes being kind to someone can, is a better way to change their heart than being angry at them. Now, what we notice, and I think you'll probably agree with me, the world today and the world in Jesus' day was telling you that anger or bitterness or resentment, that's where your power lies. Harness your anger. It's like, no, 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 no. If the world is telling you to harness your anger, then God's message is probably the opposite, that the anger is more destructive. So it's a very enticing sensation of power that leads a lot of people to remain in anger, and that, of course, becomes corrosive. So Jesus, let's go back to Jesus as our model. Jesus is going to model out how to respond in the face of injustice and in the face of, of suffering. So Jesus' suffering, Jesus is a type of archetype. I use the word archetype to mean you can't go beyond it. There's nobody, there's no better example of how somebody has suffered in the world than being betrayed on all sides, having the injustices of being convicted for not doing anything, physical suffering and humiliation. It's like, you, it, so it becomes this archetype. That's why it's so powerful when you hear the story of Jesus that it moves you because you, there's something very deep inside of us that recognizes that it's the worst type of suffering there is. So what you see is in Jesus' suffering is he's a righteous person. He's sinless. So it's, it's the worst type of suffering that happens to the, the best person that's ever walked the earth, right? That's what makes it so, that's what makes it archetypal is that you just can't go beyond that. So one of the aspects that, of Jesus' suffering is betrayal. And it's important to note, betrayal, being betrayed by a human being, is, creates some of the worst suffering possible. In fact, Dante's Inferno, so Dante's Inferno is the story, it's the, all the, the nine different layers of, of the levels of hell, and the ninth level, this is an artist's rendering of the ninth level of Dante's Inferno. The ninth level is reserved for those who betray, because betrayal is seen as the thing that sometimes people just can't recover from. So, you know, if, if you suffer because of a tornado, if you suffer because of a sickness, most people can muster the strength to move through that suffering. Because you don't assume that the tornado betrayed you, or, you know, if, if you're swimming in the ocean and a shark attacks you, you don't talk about the shark as if he betrayed your trust. You might not be happy about it, but generally people can move through that period of suffering. But to suffer with betrayal, when somebody close to, particularly close to you, because that's the worst, can wipe a, a person out, there's no doubt. It's, it's, the type, it's the worst type. So at that lower, that ninth level of Dante's Inferno, you have Cain, 
who uh, betrayed his brother. You have Judas, of course, who betrayed Jesus. And then, of course, Satan is at the bottom of everything. So if we look at Jesus being betrayed, he's betrayed by the Roman justice system, meaning they they put to death an innocent person when they shouldn't have. He's betrayed by the Jewish justice system. He's betrayed by the Jewish religious leaders. His brothers are betraying him, uh, brothers and religious brothers. He's betrayed by the disciples, right? So not just Judas either. I mean, in Luke, Peter says, Jesus, I'll follow you all the way until death. And it's in the same chapter, I think it's like 20 verses later, Peter's going, I don't know who he is, and betraying his rabbi. So at every single level, even his family, right? So even Jesus' family, so he's experiencing betrayal on literally all sides of humanity. Even to the point where, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? God is, the fact that God's going to pour out the wrath, his wrath of all the sin in the world on Jesus is another step of betrayal that you just simply can't go, go beyond. So, this is why it becomes a model for us. You can't get any worse than what's happening to Jesus. Now, if you would, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter, and it's chapter 2. Now, 1 Peter is a famous letter that's going to address the idea of suffering. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and then it's verse 21 and 23. So it's all about how you go through suffering in the world. Not that you're never going to suffer. Everybody has some level of it. He says this, verse 21, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And that's what I mean by he's an example. He's showing us the proper way to respond in the face of suffering. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. He was the perfect person. He did nothing wrong, and yet he suffered for it. And then verse 23, and this is where we really get to the meat of it, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Now that, again, if I I think to, to myself, how would I react if I was in Jesus' shoes? It's likely that I'd want to lawyer up and, you know, make all the arguments possible, but that's not what Jesus does. He, and here's the key to this. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus said, okay, God, I'm going to keep walking forward on this path. I'm going to keep the path of forgiveness, and I'm going to trust that you, as the just God, or the just judge of the world, are going to hold everybody accountable. So that's how he becomes our example. So let's go. So right, he shows up, he says, look, folks, we need to forgive. You need to forgive one another. That's an important piece. It's the path to peace, right? Now, how did the crowd, particularly the zealots, like his message? They hated it. If you're angry at the Romans, you don't want someone to walk up and tell you that you should forgive them or that you should pray for those that persecute you or you should love your enemy. 
I mean, you don't want to hear any of that. And so people are turning on him, not because he did anything wrong, but because he just didn't have the right message, right? He didn't agree with what they wanted to happen. So they hated it. And of course, he's betrayed. Now, here's where our history lesson starts to come in. Not that that already hasn't been parts of history. Jesus' death happened somewhere around 33, however scholars debate that topic. But let's say he's 33 years old, so at 33. What happened over the course of the next 30 years is increasing violence, increasing lawlessness by the Jewish people in the land until eventually, whether you think of it as the Zealots or this group called the Sicarii, pushed the Romans into a war in 66 AD. So Rome comes down, puts the boot down on Israel in 66, and by 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. But it's those, it's the years after Jesus that are, it's building up and building up and building up and building up until eventually a war kicks off. So what we see is after Jesus' death, you have increasing violence. There's a group called the Sicarii. That's the Latin word. It's Sicarii is a little knife. And the Sicarii were like, now, depending on whose side you were on, they're either freedom fighters or they're domestic terrorists because they would go around, they would kill a Roman if they could get a hold of a Roman, and they would kill a Jew if they thought the Jew was on the side of the Romans. So they're killing their own people in the name of trying to bring about the kingdom of heaven. And there was a high priest named Jonathan, and the high priest Jonathan was murdered in Jerusalem about 20 years after Jesus' death by the Sicarii. They terrorized the Jews. They terrorized their, terrorized their own people with kidnappings and murders, trying to get them to fight Rome, enticing them into fighting. In fact, what they would do is if, if you could catch a priest out in town, if you could catch a priest, they would take the knife and they would cut off a, a body part, a finger, a nose, an ear, because the Bible says a priest who is missing a body part can't can't worship and can't go inside the temple, can't be worshiping in the temple. So you cut off a body part and it eliminates that priest from being able to do his job. Well, what does Peter do? When, when Jesus is arrested, the, the servant to the high priest, which means he's somewhere in line to become the high priest someday, and Peter whips out a small knife and cuts off his ear. That's what the Sicarii did. And of course, Jesus says, knock it off, Peter. You know, you live by the sword, you died by the sword, and then Jesus heals the ear to restore it. The point being, we're not going to play that game. But that's right out of the Sicarii. That's right out of Jewish history, what Peter's doing. And they incited the population to go to war with Rome, and that's exactly what happened. So in this intervening year right here, these 30 years, you have increasing hatred, not just of Rome, of one another with inside, inside Judaism. So all of that leads us right back to this house. By the way, if you see those pavement at the base of the door, the way Jerusalem is built, it's built up on arches. So when you enter this museum, you're actually descending some stairs into the basement. The old, the ancient city is below you. So below those street pavers, you would find the ancient city of, of Jerusalem. 
So as you open the door and you descend into this museum, this is what you see. This is the old house that they find. They found, excuse me. Now, it doesn't look like much because it extends beyond the walls of this building, but this is one area of the house. And they found all kinds of stuff inside the house. Coins. So there's, you can date the coins. That's how we know when it happened. Also, by the way, the house has been burned. There's ashes. There's soot. They found bones, a woman, uh, bones to a young woman. There had been some violence in the house. They found jewelry from the family that owned the house. And we know the name of the family because this little, this is a stone that you might take to the market for when you're buying something to weigh things out. It's a stone weight, and it says, for the son of Katros. So we know the family name. The family name was the Katros family, or Kathros. That's a priestly family that lived in this, in this house. And then they found this. It was leaning in one of the corners, and that's a spearhead to a Roman spear. So Rome destroyed the temple, and then turned their sights on the city of Jerusalem, and they went out into this, especially the wealthy part of the city, and they burned down the houses. That's how we got this museum called the Burnt House today. Now, what we want to talk about is this idea that God's house was destroyed twice. Two times the, the temple was destroyed. The first time, of course, was 586 BC and the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. The second time it was destroyed, 40 years after Jesus, in 70 AD, by the Romans. Now, if you're a Jewish school kid and your temple's been destroyed, what question are you going to ask? Why? Why was our temple destroyed? And the answer that the rabbis came up with, it's remarkable to think about when we compare it to the message of Jesus. So the rabbis say this, look, 586 BC, why was the temple destroyed? It was destroyed because of adultery, murder, and idolatry. Now, those are the three main categories to receive the death penalty in the Old Testament, but they come up with those three categories. And because of that, they had to go into timeout, right? 70 years of timeout, and then you're allowed to come back and rebuild your temple. But why was the second temple destroyed? And the answer that they came up with is baseless hatred. We hated each other for no reason. So internally, it wasn't just Jew against Romans. It was Jew against Jew in hatred that led to the war with the Romans. So what's so cool, you go back to this outside of the museum, you go in this door, and as you go in the door and you descend down in the, the staircase into the darkness, because it's fairly dark down there, you get these signs or these, they're sayings from the rabbis that are on the wall. And it's exactly what I just said. It's the explanation of why the second temple was destroyed. So they say this, why was Jerusalem destroyed? The first time because of idol worship. The second time because of unqualified hatred. There was no reason for you to, be hate, to hate the other person. There was nothing they did that qualified the hatred, but you hated them anyways. So that's one of them. The second one reads like this. 
why was the first temple destroyed? Because of three iniquitous things that existed there, idolatry, illicit relations, and bloodshed. But why the second temple? Why was it destroyed? Because of baseless hatred that existed there. The reasoning the rabbis come up with for why the temple was destroyed in 70 AD is because the people hated each other. And so if we go back to this and you say, how, how can we compare that to Jesus? Because he showed up with a message of forgiveness and they rejected it. Said, no, I'll stay in my anger and resentment and bitterness because that's the path to peace. And Jesus cries over Jerusalem and says, if only you had known what's going to bring about peace. It's not war. It's not fighting. It's the power of forgiveness, right? So he preaches forgiveness and 40 years later, the place is destroyed because of baseless hatred. That's what happens with baseless hatred. And what I think is the most important point to all this is that the antidote to baseless hatred, the antidote to people hating each other is forgiveness. It's the only thing that will move you back to the, to the point of being able to love your neighbor. So let me show you. I want to finish with two things. I'll show you this. It's a quote by Jonathan Sachs. I believe I put this on your sheet. Jonathan Sachs is writing about Joseph. Uh, it's a commentary on Genesis about the importance of forgiveness. And he says, when people lack the ability to forgive, they're unable to resolve conflict. The result is division, factionalism, and the fragmentation of a nation into competing groups and sects. Those who seek freedom must learn to forgive. And it just strikes me, you know, that there's nothing new under the sun. Baseless hatred has existed within humanity for as long as the world's been around. It started with Cain. So this is nothing new. But the message that Jesus brings of how we're supposed to bring about peace in the world is what often we ignore, right? We, we go for power. Let me show you one more book. If you're interested in reading more about this idea, the cho having the choice of moving towards forgiveness, this book called The Choice, Dr. Edith Eager, she actually lives here in San Diego. Her family was killed in the Holocaust. So she was captured, her family was captured in the Holocaust. She was about the same age as Anne Frank when she got taken into the concentration camps. She ended up becoming a therapist and talks about this idea of having to release the worst parts that people have done to you so that you can continue to grow. And the, the artwork on that book is amazing because you can tell it's barbed wire, right? It's the barbed wire of the concentration camp that has a, a flower blossoming out of it. So if you're interested in reading more about this idea of not holding on to baseless hatred, this is a great book. Just came out a couple years ago. So if we go back to my initial proposition, that Jesus is talking about the path forward to peace, given the inherent suffering in the world. Yes, we're not, we're not denying that, that there's suffering. There is. But that path is through the being able to make the choice to forgive. And when we can release, then we'll actually move towards, in a positive way, back towards peace. So, if you haven't ever heard this before, well, that's part of the reason why I wanted to present it, but 
from that time frame, we kind of lose we lose sight of what happened within Jerusalem. We don't study that side of the history about how factional the whole place became and how it descended into chaos. And of course, the the Christian message, the the New Testament presents the punishment of Jerusalem, the destruction, as a just judgment for the killing of an innocent person, namely Jesus. Considering, you know, as we look at the landscape of the world that we live in today, you see this. You see people who are holding on to hatred and anger and bitterness and resentment and not letting go and assuming that that will bring, lead them to down the path of peace. So anyways, hopefully I was able to convey that. Let me stop my share. And one thing, I should have mentioned this, one thing is God, God picked the perfect person to send out, right? Paul, because he was one of those angry people who's resorting to violence as the path forward. And then he has, of course, this transition. And so when he goes out to interact with people, they could, no one can say, hey, Paul, you never, you don't understand. Paul would say, I know exactly what you're talking about, right? That was me. I lived the anger. And if you'll, you notice, especially say Colossians 3, if you read Colossians 3, he takes you along that negative to positive, And he, he says, let go of anger and bitterness and jealousy and envy, you know, get rid of strife, then start clothing yourself in righteousness. He eventually gets to love, but right before the sentence on love, he says, you have to forgive one another. So it's almost like he's he's climbing a ladder, but the rung that's right before love is forgiveness. That's why, that's why I think that's such an important piece to, that we we often leave out. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.